face-to-face conferences will exist until we devise a way to be able to drink beer virtually. Do I need to have a mint before the podcast? No, you don't. That's not how it works. Not yet. Just take me a second here, because I have the power. That was funny. Unless you want to pretend to be me, I don't really mind. No, my Glaswegian accent is not as good as yours. Well, my my Brussels accent, hmm. Who's doing the heavy breathing seriously? I was worried about you guys. Okay, let's go. We are recording. Welcome to Troublesome Terps, the interpreting podcast where no topic is off limits and no argument is too obscure. I'm Jonathan Downey and with me today is blogger, techie, app junker, Junkie, interpreter for the EU institutions, Alexander Drexel. Hi, Alexander. Hello, everyone. How are you? Here's your resident app junker. Yes. <laughs> this is going to be a lady. <laughs> also with me is a man who's been on more boards than a Broadway actor and has a nice line in making network marketers seem believable. Conference interpreter, Alexander Gansmeyer. Hi, Alexander. Hey, guys. Coming in to you live in Hartford, Munich. How are you? Nice to be here. And completing our team today is our special guest, Barry Slaughter Olson. He's not only the founder of Interpret America, an associate professor at Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey, and the leading conference interpreter in his own right, he's also pushing the boundaries of interpreting technology with his cloud-based multi-channel audio system, which we're actually using today, ZipDX. He's therefore ideally placed to help us get our head around today's topic, remote interpreting. Hello, Barry. Hello, Jonathan, and hello, Alex and Alex. It's great to be with you all today. It's, it's great fun to do this podcast. This is one I've been personally looking forward to for a while. Now, for those of you who can't see our screens, um, we've moved from our, our normal provider onto trying out and using ZipDX today. I'm genuinely impressed by how well this has worked. But Barry, can you give us a, a quick chat around the background of what made you get involved with ZipDX and who the software is aimed at? Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. So basically, uh, the idea came about um, in about 2010, 2011. Uh, I relocated to California in 2007 and started doing a fair amount of work in Silicon Valley as, a, as an interpreter. And I noticed that many of the companies in Silicon Valley had no clue about technology for interpreting. But I saw what was happening with remote conferencing, web conferencing, video conferencing. I thought there has to be a way to facilitate simultaneous interpretation for some of these remote or virtual meetings. Didn't go anywhere for several years. I talked to a lot of companies. They just weren't interested because there wasn't an existing market to be served. Um, And then in 2011, I met my business partner, David Frankel, who's the founder of ZipDX. And uh, we started to put our heads together and said, you know, could we create this multi-channel system and basically recreate what you have in a multilingual conference room with simultaneous interpretation and create it in the cloud? And we did. 
Um, and our platform is focused on a number of use cases, but I'll just mention one right now, and that is for uh, conference calls with simultaneous interpretation. And this is audio conferencing. We aren't using video here, but we do have other applications where we do work with video feeds so that interpreting can take place with video as well. I'll leave it at that so that we can jump into the discussion and uh, you know, get more into the nitty gritty in a minute. One thing that really strikes me, I'm going to let the other Alexi jump in a minute with their backgrounds, but the, the way remote interpreting has certainly been sold to some to, to me when I when I've seen adverts for it has either been it's this thing that's going to change our careers forever and we're never going to have to leave the house again and we can uh, not hang up our suits and just wear pajamas all day, or it's been seen by some interpreters as the big bad bogeyman that's going to steal our jobs. Um I suspect that given your background, Barry, you're not going to take either of those extreme positions, but do you see it in any way replacing traditional simultaneous interpreting for us? Replacing, no. Augmenting, yes. I do think that we may reach some point where there is a significant number of meetings that are taking place virtually, and if we plan to serve those meetings, we will have to be able to work on a virtual platform. Um, there are other areas, and I think it's important for us to understand that when we say interpreting, I have a feeling that the four of us are thinking conference interpreting, working in a booth at a multilingual meeting. But for the vast majority of interpreters around the world, they're thinking of other applications. Here in the United States, it could be a medical interpreter at a clinic or a hospital. It could be a uh, legal interpreter working on a court case in the courtroom. And so when we say interpreting, we use that as shorthand, but so many people think of something different uh, when we say interpreting. So I think there is pressure on certain kinds of interpreting, like medical interpreting, with the introduction of video remote interpreting. And I know that in the courts here in the United States in particular, there is a concern about remote interpreting, pulling the interpreters out of the courtroom. I don't think that the concern has to be as big as it is. I don't think that, you know, we really want to move people out of courtrooms when everybody else is there physically present. But there are all sorts of use cases for remote interpreting. And for the most part, they are not use cases that would replace or change the way that we currently work in those areas where we're used to working. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah. So may I just jump in and just to mm -hmm. just to double check because you did mention that this is, for example, one of the use cases could be a conference call, um, but then you also mentioned that this could be, for example, for a medical interpreting. In the UK and in Germany, things like this already exist. So kind of a, a video solution for medical interpreting where it's mostly. Um, dialogue interpreting, so semi-consecutive, bilateral consecutive. Is this more what you would offer this to a client for, or would you also offer it? So when you, for example, say it could also be used for a telephone conference, would you suggest they do this on your platform on ZipDX as simultaneous or as dialogue, so bilateral consecutive? Well, in reality, um, we're set up to provide remote simultaneous interpretation for conference calls. And you're right. And I think it's indicative that, uh, Alex, that you were needed some clarification because um, our platform is built for 
using simultaneous interpretation in virtual meetings. So this platform isn't going to be used for video remote interpreting. There are other platforms that have been designed specifically for dialogic consecutive interpreting, and they work very well for that. Um, and I, I think that's probably the first takeaway from our call today, that there are many different technological platforms out there, and each one is basically fine-tuned to one or two or maximum three use cases. So there isn't one technological platform that's going to do everything. And so whenever you're talking about remote interpreting, you also have to clearly define what kind of interpreting are you talking about. Is it um, an interpreter who is remotely connecting to a room where there are two people who are face-to-face? Or is it an interpreter who is connecting to a platform like the ZipDX platform where everyone else is also connected via internet or via phone and they can't see each other and they're all virtual as well? You know, you've got all sorts of, of different use cases. And then you have the use cases that you see a lot at the European institutions where the interpreters are in full booths but they're not in the room. There may be one floor down and they have multiple video feeds and are working that way remotely. So we really have to be mm. clear to define our terms and what we mean when we say remote interpreting. I think Absolutely. that's a, a good spot to, to bring in Alexander Drexel. With your experience of the European institutions, are the institutions moving more towards kind of the video remote interpreting that we would expect to see in simultaneous or um, it, kind of what's the pace of change in the institutions? Well, first of all, we do almost exclusively simultaneous interpreting at the institutions. I mean, there's very little in terms of consecutive or other modes of interpreting. So that's the that's the first thing. And um, in terms of remote, um, the institutions were among the first, actually, uh, decades ago already, I think, to run tests. Um, for remote, if it's possible, and how it could be done, and what the effects are on the interpreters. So there are uh, quite a few studies out there as well. And what's happening at the moment, or what's been happening for a few years now with uh, at the institutions, at the um, uh, Council of Ministers, to be quite precise, is that there are some meetings, uh, more specifically the uh, working dinners of the summits of the heads of state and government where they have remote interpretation. And as Barry said, um, we don't necessarily use uh, an online platform, but we have a very sophisticated setup, actually. So there is an actual meeting room where the meeting takes place with all the participants. And that meeting room is stuffed full of um, cameras, uh, I think automatic cameras or maybe operated by a cameraman. I don't know quite for sure at the moment. And then there's a second meeting room that can be one floor down or next door, depending on the arrangements. And there the interpreters will be working in booths uh, as they would normally, but just um, with screens in front of the booth. So they can see several things. They can see the whole room. So they can see all the participants at the same time. They can see who's speaking at the moment and maybe the president as well. So there's quite a sophisticated setup, which obviously is very uh, expensive as well. So it cannot be done in, in any circumstance or not in every circumstance rather. And it cannot be done all the time. So it's used rather for this very specific purpose. I think that that's the other point I'm getting from this is that 
Um, interpreters traditionally have told their clients, you know, there's one solution. And even in something like medical or court interpreting, largely they've, they've given clients the same message of there is one solution. And if you don't like this solution, that's it. Um, I think where remote interpreting simply might, uh, certainly my own limited experience of it has helped is that if you have a small meeting room, then you, you don't have to say to the client, sorry, you have to go to a, big, a bigger one. You can say, yes, you can be in that one and you can have the interpreters down the way. But here are the pros and cons of that setup. Um, I think what what I hope we're moving to, and I hope that Barry and the, the two Alexes will kind of say more on this, is being able to say to clients, there's a, a myriad of options, and your interpreter's not just there to stand back and say, well, you should do it my way. We're there to, to understand the options ourselves and say to the clients, in this kind of situation, here are your options, and here is the one I would recommend that's best for you. Not necessarily the one that's plushest for the interpreters or involves us staying in the best hotels, but the one that will create the best um, results for the meeting. Um, I don't know whether you guys would agree with that or not, but that's certainly the the feeling that I'm getting the interpreting moving towards that. But in a way, I think that that should have been the case all along, shouldn't it? That the the interpreter is not just you know a dictionary on legs, as we had in an early episode, but that you're someone who can provide a lot of other services as well um, to your clients. So you can not only you know enable communication in the meeting, but you can give them a lot of advice. You can you know give them advice on how communication can happen in a way that is really ideal for for the client. And I think the kind of advice on uh, using remote at all, and if yes, what kind of remote to use, I think that's just part of the of the package deal that we should offer, shouldn't we? I do yeah. believe so, but then again, I don't necessarily think that the, and this is me playing devil's advocate, so don't get me wrong, I just am not sure that the clients necessarily always want the, the advice, they just want the solution. And just one, one example, and this is kind of going into the direction that you described, Alex, um, how it is being presented at the European institutions. I had to organize a, a large conference with 10 different languages, so 10 booths, and they just wouldn't physically fit in the uh, conference venues or in the location. Um, the relatively simple solution was to uh, add a couple of things onto the equipment quote, which was basically two booth, uh, two um, screens per booth and a cameraman and a camera, which of course makes everything a lot more expensive, but the clients wish to not have the interpreters in the in the, the, the conference venue due to a lack of space was accommodated for. So um, I don't know if he would wanted to have if you would, if he would have had wanted to have a, a long and lengthy discussion about the pros and cons of the remote solution, I just think he wanted a solution, and that was the one that I offered because it was very pragmatic, and I know that that solution works very well if it's being done properly. I think that that's the interesting thing, and it was the question that I, the, the question that I asked when we were preparing the program is, whose interests is this technology serving? And I think if we can say to clients. If we have the knowledge in our heads and we can say to clients, well, you know, there's no space in the room, here's here's a solution, that's what we can roll with, but beware these are the costs, you know, he, here's what's going to happen. And I think we, we almost need custom-made briefs for remote interpreting to say to clients, something changes when the interpreter's not physically with you. 
Um, and if we can understand what that is and present it to clients and say, we're quite happy to give you a solution, but it may help if you slightly change the course of the event or you slightly allow for the differences of not having an interpreter there. Yeah, Jonathan, this is Barry. I completely agree with that. And I think it's important to understand the pros and the cons of each one of the use cases and the technological solution that you offer up to serve that use case. For example, uh, we've been working with the International Telecommunications Union in Geneva, Switzerland for a number of years as one of our clients, but we have a different use case with them. The interpreters are still in the booths, in the conference room, but the ITU has a need to connect participants from other parts of the world where the technology platforms don't necessarily allow for a full-on telepresence uh, participation. They don't have the bandwidth, and sometimes they need people just to connect by phone or through a web conferencing interface, and we are able to make it possible for these remote participants to have access to any of the languages that are being interpreted, and they are also able to speak in the language of their choice from any of the UN languages that are being used at that meeting. And so in that case, the interpreters aren't remote. It's the participants that are coming in to either participate and listen, or maybe they're going to give a short presentation. And then the audio is then piped into the interpreters in the booth, and everyone is able to hear either the interpretation or the original audio based on what they want. Um, but in order to do that, the ITU has been very careful to ensure that they check the connection of the participants beforehand to make sure that the audio quality will be such that the interpreters can do their job professionally. So they've built in those, those necessary checks so that you don't end up with substandard audio that's going to make it impossible for an interpreter to do her job. I think this is the interesting thing, though, is that I've certainly had interpreters come up to me and say something like, I just interpret. You know, I don't want to be involved in this stuff. And I think the sad thing is, is that traditionally that's actually been a very safe way to act. And, you know, you had the odd consultant interpreter and everyone would bow down to them and that was fine. But I think now increasingly I'm getting even some of my agency clients sending me emails not saying, are you available for this job? But we've already decided that we want to assign you this job, but the client has a technological query or the client has a methodological query. What should we do in this situation? Now, if, if your attitude is, I'm just the interpreter, I don't touch that stuff, I think increasingly you're going to lose clients because even the agencies are now wanting interpreters who can give them solid advice and give them almost scripts to go back to the clients with. There was one recently where the client was talking about using the um, handheld microphone for interpreting in, in a meeting. And I was able to explain why in their particular meeting that wasn't the ideal solution. But if I hadn't been ready to do that, the agency client, I'm sure, would have just phoned another interpreter on the list and said, can you deal with this for us? Um, I think the idea of just an interpreter, the more technology that we see, the more clients change what they want, the less tenable that will be as a business strategy. Um, and that for me is another takeaway from this call is that we can't afford to ignore the changes in our industry and we have to get to know them very quickly and not be scared of them. Totally agree on that, Jonathan. Let me jump in again because 
something that has happened with the explosion of technologies through the internet is, and I'm going to throw out a, what we would call a $5 word here in the United States. Um, and that word is dis, um, hold on one second. It is disintermediation. And basically what that long word ends up meaning, I don't know if you guys have heard it before, but um, with disintermediation, it means that suppliers of services or of goods don't have to go through intermediaries necessarily to get to the end client. Um, and we're seeing more and more of that in language services as well, where you actually have platforms that have been built specifically to just provide the platform. And so if an interpreter is enterprising and has clients and wants to move them to that platform, they can sign up and get access to the platform, roll that into their service offering, and they're able to do things that in the past only agencies could do. So it opens up that whole discussion that you've referred to. Um, can I say, no, I'm just an interpreter. I only interpret. Or are you going to need to add other skills and other offerings so that you can remain competitive in the market you're in? And my experience has been, as I've watched this over the last few years, is that there are some markets where interpreters, for the time being, can continue to just interpret. They have things set up so that that works for them. But for many of the new interpreters, for those that are working in markets that are quite different from, say, Geneva and Brussels, they're looking for ways to offer their services and they're looking for ways to increase their access to good work. So um, there is an opportunity, but there is also a need to stay on top of the technology for sure. If I can just jump in there, um, because we had talked a little bit about the specialization of the platforms. So we have ZipDX, which is for uh, mainly for audio. Um, then I talked to the guys uh, from another startup, which is called Voiceboxer, which focuses mainly on multilingual webinars and presentations. So I think that's what that's an interesting trend um, to watch, because in the beginning, there were a few platforms a couple of years ago that, that said, we'll do remote interpreting, whatever it is, all the languages, all the topics, you know, that kind of thing. But now there's this kind of specialization. And on the other hand, it's interesting to watch these companies evolve because with some, you get the impression that they are basically trying to become kind of like an agency because yes, disintermediation, we have these technical opportunities now, but I think for these, for the companies, it would also become interesting and maybe difficult to not just be a platform or a, or a dumb pipe, if you will, but maybe to try to provide uh, additional services, value-added services, whatever you want to call them, uh, maybe because they they have to. So that that'll be kind of an interesting thing to to watch, I think, because the companies, of course, want to do that outreach. They want to grow a community. They want to have people that sign up for the services um, and that kind of thing. So I'm I'm not quite sure how that will play out. I mean, this plays into one of the things that I've become very aware of is that the interpreting market, bit, bit of background, when I did my master's, it, the accepted pathway was that most of the UK didn't have enough interpreting conferences for a conference interpreter to sustain a business. So the pathway was you went to Paris or Brussels or Geneva and you jumped straight into that market. Now, those markets, I'm sure, still exist and are still thriving. But I wonder if, if Alex Gansmeyer will say the same as me, that the 
the markets outside of the traditional conference cities are completely different to the way they used to be. And I'm beginning to see that certainly for me and for my own business to be sustainable, I'm having to reach out to what I would call non-traditional interpreting clients. So people who would never trade in those conference cities or wouldn't be big enough to afford to, to trade in there. People who've probably never heard of interpreters before, but just see language as a problem and they want to do something with people from other countries, but they don't understand the lingo. And rather than having this client education thing, I'm thinking of it now as educating me as to what these businesses are doing and what they're after. And the more I learn about what they want, the more I realize interpreting is their natural solution but they, they don't know that it exists in a way that's affordable for them. And so I think we are we are beginning to see, I think, this massive separation between the traditional interpreting market, which is basically a, almost like a remote staff market, and the interpreting market outside of those cities, which is you pick your clients up where you can, work with agencies where you want to and where you can, but anyone outside of an agency, you're having to walk them through the process of what it is you do why that's useful for them and kind of win them over on a personal basis rather than I'm an interpreter, you know you need me really. Um, Alex Gansmeyer, would you say, is is your market doing the same where you're having these kind of newer non-traditional clients as well? Um, in a way, I think yes, but in another way, I think that the tra- the, the big traditional conferences, they're here and I think think also in the future, at least in the medium term, they are here to stay. What I think, um, and, and this you also mentioned, a lot of clients don't even know what we can do for them. And I think this is where remote interpreting might come in very handy because you can just do that 30 minute conference call where they don't necessarily want to pay for your travel to location X. Um, to, to just do that quick meeting, but you can just log on online and do this conference call. So it might actually open up more business for us in that way, which again, as you said, is not the traditional conference, conferencing market in a way. So I think we might have more business fields open to us in that way. But equally so, I think uh, coming back to remote interpreting specifically, I think it poses a couple of, um, I don't want to say problem because that's a mean word as we've learned. So I'm just going to say issues um, in that, of course, a lot of long established concepts that we in interpreting have worked for, such as, for example, the professional domicile are going to be completely circumvented by this entire, well, operation in a way, because my business domicile might be Munich, but I could still go and do a re- remote conference in Los Angeles, I mean, the time difference will probably be killer, but, you know, I could still do it. So that would allow me to save the client uh, travel and accommodation and per diems and whatever have you. But I might just take that job away from someone in um, Los Angeles. Um, So I think it does offer opportunities for, for a lot of us. But, you know, especially in the light of what digitalization has done to other businesses and what globalization has done to the economy in general, um, it could also pose a huge challenge. If I may, I'll jump in and and, uh, just mention something as well. Um, Alex, you're, you're right that that could pose a huge problem 
particularly, oop, I said the P word, problem, the challenge, <laughs> issue, you know, whatever you want to call it. If we're talking about having um, remote interpreting replace on-site interpreting, um, that's definitely the case. And there, you know, there can be some friction that's going to be caused by that. My own personal um, experience uh, working in this space now for over five years is that I really have only seen that happen once or twice. And it's it's not where the f real focus is. I know there are a lot. When, when you talk to uh, people who need the services, they often think, well, can't you just do this online so that we don't have to worry about the per diem and the travel and all these things? Because let's face it, it is expensive to move people around. But there are meetings where that has to be done. Um, and local interpreters, if they have the ability and they're there, then, you know, they can just work locally. But most of these meetings, if it's that 30-minute teleconference or that 30-minute conference call or a 45-minute webinar, you know, th these are all new use cases. Um, if they've switched to webinars and stopped holding face-to-face -face meetings and replaced the face-to-face -face meetings wholesale with webinars and conference calls, then yes, there is some displacement going on there. But what I'm seeing is that you're having a lot more people start to market their products and services using webinars, or they're tacking on two or three um, conference calls in the lead up to a big face-to-face -face meeting, and then meeting to follow up afterwards. So the short answer is yes, that is a risk. And I think we are going to deal with that as the technologies get better and easier to use and they really want to move, don't want to have to pay those costs. But in the meantime, what I'm seeing is that most of the growth is happening in these new areas that don't replace the face-to-face -face meetings. I totally agree with that, and that's why I was saying that I think that the big conferences are also here to stay, at least in the medium term, because, as, of course, as soon as we invent teleportation, then we're all done. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as you've mentioned, these are these solutions, at least at the moment, and probably for the, the intermediate future, are going to be solutions for a specific case, because as much as um, these solutions offer something new. I don't necessarily think that someone would want to spend a seven-hour conference, you know, in an online remote interpreted meeting. That's just, I just oh, don't see that happening. No. So I, so I, oh. exactly. I wouldn't want to so, do that so as an interpreter. <laughs> exactly. So that's why I think you're right, that it, that it is for a specific case or for specific cases, and it doesn't necessarily replace these traditional conference, mm. um, this traditional conference market. It's, it's up to us as interpreters to explain that to the client because they may not always know mm. uh, what the differences are. So we, we better have good arguments um, when, when we get into those conversations. Mm. That's very true. I think, if I, I was just going to mention this, this funny anecdote that I heard a couple of uh, years ago as I was listening to the meetings industry talk about virtualization. And there was a lot of people that were afraid to think, oh, my goodness, this second life thing and some of these new technologies, what's going to happen to the face-to-face -face meeting industry? And an analyst said something that I thought was humorous and at the same time spot on. He said, face-to-face -face conferences will exist until we devise a way to be able to drink beer vir virtually. <laughs> and I think that that's you know, really true. I, th I think that is precisely the point, though, is that I remember writing a blog post once called 
um, the importance of being there. And it was slightly, it was a little bit of an anti-remote interpreting rant when I didn't fully understand, but um, there is still this thing that if we're not dictionaries on legs, if we are people, if we are helping people to communicate, then actually as much happens between the talks and that coffee break as happens during the event itself. Uh, I remember a senior interpreter joking to me once when we got interpreters visiting and I jokingly received the advice when I was doing my master's of never talk to the clients at lunchtime because they'll ask you to interpret. Now I'm realizing that actually lunch times and break times are ideal times to talk to clients because then, you know, you can ask terminology questions and you don't mind, but what seems to impress clients is when you actually show an interest in their work and start saying, you know, when you said that, um, let's talk about what you meant when you said that. And then when you go back into the booth, it's not just a list of terms. It's not just an event. It's something that you're involved in too. Um, and I think that's why I can't see remote interpreting putting anyone really out of a job. I liked your case of, you know, if they go from meetings to webinars, well, the truth is we've lost, the in-person interpreters have lost the client anyway. I would much rather they still work with professionals than use a, a machine interpreting solution. You know, if, if the client's already gone down a route, we can't pull them back suddenly. We have to take um, what Alexander Drexel calls the disruption and use it to our advantage too. And if we're so tied, I think, to our traditions that we can't do that, then it's we're we're making ourselves suffer. Um, but it will be I, I'll be fascinated to see how the the industry changes over the next four or five years, because I think we're beginning to see a tipping point here between changes in training, changes in technology, changes in how some people think it's unethical to travel too far. And all of these changes have got to tip at some point. And the question is, well, what do we do to prepare for that? Is remote interpreting one of the solutions that we're going to need just to survive? Maybe to just give one example for the, I, I think the tipping point is a very good uh, metaphor to use. Just to give one example, um, due to the refugee situation that we have in Europe at the moment, uh, it has turned out that remote interpreting is being used increasingly um, to provide you know, a fair asylum procedure to the people coming to Europe now, because they often speak very exotic languages and uh, we often don't have the interpreters that we need for these procedures or they're maybe not in the right place. So increasingly, you now see news articles um, describing just that. So that that tipping point may already be happening just by, you know, due to these events that take place. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to that. But um, while on the one hand, this definitely affords the refugees, in your example, the the benefit of having an interpreter present, I think certain preconditions have to be met. And I just wanted to ask this because I've been experiencing issues with my internet connection, which the uh, listeners might not know, but you all participating in this podcast do. So my question to Barry is how, if one were to use a, a remote interpreting solution, what would you tell them? What's your advice in terms of preparation? What do you need to have at home? What are the specifications that you should look out for? And also when you're advising a client, what would you tell them that they would need to ensure on their end, so on the client's end, as well as maybe even on the interpreter's end, if at all possible? 
Well, those are both great questions. And um, on the client side, one of the things that we tell people when they're exploring the use of, of our technology that we built is we say, your second conference call is going to go great. And by that, we mean that the first one, there are going to be some bumps in the road. People have to get used to using the technology and see that they can actually be interpreted when they're on the phone. And they work through those things. And once everything clicks, it's really amazing to see the magic of simultaneous interpretation, just like when you're in a meeting and it's working and you see people speaking multiple languages and they're conversing as if there were no language barrier. So um, for them, it's understanding, look, one thing, you can't give a really long presentation. If you're chairing this, this conference call, you can't be on your cell phone in an airport right before you get on the plane um, because background noise can be an issue. Um, also, cellular telephones can be anywhere from okay to really bad. And so someone may be able to participate using a cell phone if they have just a few things to say. But if you're chairing a meeting that's going to go on for an hour, you'd better be on a good, solid, dependable landline and preferably have a handset or a headset so that you have the best sound possible. Um, and you've the interpreters just switching now to them. And this goes not just for, you know, say the ZipDX platform. It goes for any remote interpreting platform. You, you need to think about how you can provide the best service to your client from your office or your home office. So one, you need dependable wired broadband. Wi-Fi is wonderful. It gives us a great uh, deal of freedom to move around, but the simple reality is that the technology is not as dependable as wired. Um, and you need to have a good bandwidth, both up and down. Um, I recommend having uh, a good computer and installing two um, screens. I have two screens in my office that allow me to have access to additional information, the chat, uh, all sorts of uh, different resources, and I can also look up terminology when I'm not interpreting or do some research, or I can send terminology or names and numbers to my colleague who is working from, you know, his or her home office. And so uh, you've got to have the dependable wired broadband, a good computer, a good quality USB or analog headset, USB headsets are becoming easier to use and the technology has improved significantly. So, and then you also have uh, the need to, to have an office, a place where you can close the door and that room can become your interpreting booth. So, I mean, those are the things that I would mention right now. Um, I'm not sure, hopefully I've answered your question and uh, I'll go ahead and turn it back over to Jonathan. Yeah, I was going to say that the the interesting thing for me is, um, I'm sure I've said on the podcast before, I have three children, the oldest of whom has just turned four. Um, and so the reality for me is that if I wanted to do remote interpreting, I would either have to send my wife and children out of the house, or I would have to find some way of putting soundproofing in the house, I think. Um, knowing the limitations of the technology, knowing that we can honestly say to clients, this will solve all of your problems. Um, we almost have to treat it as if we were interpreting in a booth and say, okay, what 
conditions would we want in the booth? Um, and I, I love this idea of having an office and closing the door and that being it. Um, it it's asking, though, is remote interpreting asking for just as much patience from our families and understanding as we ask from them when we travel to an assignment? Um, I, I think a lot of people are looking for the nirvana in interpreting where they can interpret and never have to leave the house and be just as close to their families as they ever would be. But the reality that you've described there, Barry, is that if you're remote interpreting, you may as well be on site for the, um, as far as your family are concerned anyway, because you are off limits for however long that assignment is. Um, do we need a, a dose of reality in the industry that we can never interpret and be colouring in with the children at the same time? I think so. And I, uh, you can't. It's similar to those that have been doing telecommuting to work for several years. When you are working from your home office, you are working. And so you have to have that that clear line between, you know, your your family and personal life and what you're doing when you're working. Yeah, and I think there's there's another point too. I mean, things where we have to adapt because um, I noticed that when I looked uh, at the voice boxer platform, because they actually came up with a rather interesting way of how two interpreters can take turns in the virtual booth, as it were, because it can happen, or it will probably usually be the case that um, you're not in the same location. I mean, there's one in the home office and the other interpreters also in the home office. And then, of course, if if you have a good platform, then that platform will have found a good way for the communication between the two, because I think that's one of the other big changes that's taking place, uh, something that we have to adapt to is how do we communicate with our booth mate or the other interpreters, if it's a bigger uh, meeting, a, bit, a bigger situation, how do we take turns? How do we help each other? Because that's, of course, a, a very big part of interpreting is that it's teamwork and that we're helping each other out. Yeah, that, that is true. And we've actually done that on our platform as well, where we've tried to recreate the audio conditions you have in the booth when you're getting ready to take over from a booth mate. So we can give you a mix of the floor audio and the audio of your booth mate, and you can coordinate so that the switch can be, um, I would say, almost as seamless or just as seamless as when you're in the booth and you're in sync. Um, but it's it's something that you have to get used to because you don't have the visual cues that you use when you're physically in the same space. But, you know, again, I think we have to look at these things as, well, we have to figure out a way to do it well in this new environment. And what sometimes saddens me is colleagues will look at something new and they'll try to poke holes in it as fast as they can. And as soon as they find one, they'll say, oh, and that's why we should never do it. And I, I think that's the wrong approach. I think that's maybe, I've been slightly guilty of that myself with not so much remote interpreting technology, although I must admit I've been quick to to dismiss it as a technology that's going to kill all of our jobs. But something like machine interpreting, I'm sure there's going to be a use for it, just like machine translation has now been integrated into translators' workflows. Where I think I could see a real possibility is for someone to take an existing web-based interpreting platform and go, well, what other technologies can we bolt, bolt into that? Um, I love the way that translators have now got their translation environments on now this mass of interconnected technologies that talk to each other, that 
instantaneously swap and look up data. And if we're going to move interpreting to the cloud anyway, um, isn't there potential for us to to kind of plus interpreting in a way to think, you know, there are certain things you can't do in the booth very well at the moment. You know, a term lookup in the booth is actually slightly tricky. It has to be the interpreter who's not working. You have to have reliable Wi-Fi. They're going to be losing concentration on any sort of listening activity while they're doing it. And you know there's going to be a delay. Well, if you're remote interpreting online, there's no reason why you can't have a bolt-on or a search window open at the same time that you can do term lookups incredibly quickly. Um, do you see any potential, Barry, and, and even at, uh, Alexander Drexel as well, is there any potential for us to to add bolt-ons to existing technology and do for interpreting what the modern translation environments and CAT tools have done for translation? Just a quick one, um, because I think the biggest change that we need is just a, a change of mindset. And I'm not saying that each and every translator was really clamoring for more technology. I don't think that's the case. I mean, some of them maybe had to grudgingly adapt to it, but adapted they have. And I think we can really learn a lesson from that. Over. Yeah, okay. Um, I do think those possibilities are there. In fact, we explored it back in 2011 at the second Interpret America Summit. Um, Natalie Kelly, who was working for Common Sense Advisory back then, came and spoke specifically about what interpreters would like to see. And as we did this blue skying event, I mean, people were saying, I'd like to have voice recognition of the original speech put the text up on the screen in front of me and then be able to immediately give me uh, possibilities for different terminology that shows up. Um, you know, that's, I think that's still in the future because voice recognition, although it's improved significantly, um, still isn't there to be able to provide that um, in a way that would be dependable. But certainly, especially with the fact that the technologies now are mainly cloud-based and browser-based, there is a lot that could be done um, to do a mashup, if you will, of database technology for certain glossaries that would be able to provide you with terminology while you're in, you know, working on one of these calls um, or one of these virtual meetings or whatever it may be. So yes, definitely. But uh, one of the challenges that we run into with technology and interpreting is interpreting is a subset of the language services industry and it's smaller and oftentimes developers look at this and they say hmm is there really a market for me to go after so um, gratefully we're starting to see people do see those possibilities but they focused mainly on how to deliver interpreting services the whole idea of providing technological tools to the interpreter to improve practice is still in its infancy. I mean, it's even more in its infancy than the technology that we're using today or those that are being created for remote interpreting. But uh, we are seeing you know, terminology database programs that are being created by interpreters for interpreters, and I hope to see that grow. Yeah, I, I think it is. We move towards a close. I think the the main theme that I've got out of this podcast is that uh, to 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 um badly paraphrase the Wizard of Oz, this isn't Kansas anymore, and we can't pretend that the Kansas that some of us grew up with or some of us were trained to to serve in 
is the one that exists now. And so perhaps what we're better doing is looking at how we can mash up the technologies. I jokingly put on Twitter, semi-jokingly said, could someone please invent a, a touchscreen heads-up display in the booth that can serve me terminology and still let me see through that to the people in the people in the room? And I think we're beginning to move to a place where, you know, if you had, um, if you were in the the room but you had ZipDX running all of your interpreting equipment, we're running heading towards virtual consoles anyway. So perhaps the time is right for another blue sky event, but not just saying. Um, how can we make our jobs the best possible? But how can we deliver the best services to clients? Um, I just wondered if anyone else wanted to, to jump in as we wrap up. Just what are your thoughts on the idea that we're not in Kansas anymore? You know, what does all of this tech actually mean for our work? Was I the only one imagining Jonathan like Tom Cruise in Minority Report sitting in the booth? flipping away terminology on the see-through heads-up display. No, but all jokes totally aside, what I, I had think... in mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but I think the technology is definitely something that, I mean, we're not in Kansas anymore, but I don't think we're just quite somewhere else yet. I think it's something that we have to be aware of and we have to open ourselves to all the possibilities because if we just shut ourselves off, and and shut our eyes the technology is still going to keep going silicon valley isn't going anywhere you know these solutions are going to chug along with or without us so i think it's it's good to to do what we do here and and be aware and make other people aware and definitely also have these these blue sky events i, I quite like that idea of you know really doing these these moonshot exercises and, and saying this is where we could go as well um so, yeah, I, I think we're not 100% quite in the high-tech Star Wars future yet, but might not be that much that much left to go to get there. <laughs> and I think another important point is, is certainly training. And, Barry, I'm just thinking back a couple of weeks ago or uh, months ago, there was uh, the Skik Universities Conference here in Brussels and where um, the uh, European Commission's Interpreting Service meets representatives of the universities that train interpreters and translators. And it was quite encouraging to see how much technology is already uh, common practice and standard practice in the universities, because I think that will be key as we move out of Kansas and into yeah, interpreters nirvana or whatever that may be. Yeah, um, I think that's where it all begins. And this is a generational shift. Um, those that are um, going to be using these technologies are going to be the younger interpreters. Many of my colleagues that are you know, older than me have said, you know, I'm not interested. I'm good. I've got my clients. And so I'm going to continue this way until I retire. But the younger interpreters, those that are coming through the training institutions, my experience has been that they are very eager to learn about them. And at the same time, they're cautious because they want to make sure that it's going to be a good thing for them. Mm. And I think that's the right position to take. Just one quick kind of wrap up. I'd like us to do a bit of a rapid fire response to this. And that is um, we know, I, I certainly know that there will be some people listening to this going, why have they not given us 15 minutes on all of the evils and why remote interpreting is bad and and how horrible it is? 
what would you say to reassure people who are waiting for us to tell them how horrible it is? Or, or are there any drawbacks that you think we haven't covered that you just want to talk about in a couple of sentences and say how we can get around them? Let's start with um, with Dalek Alex Gansmar. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have uh, any horrific drawbacks on the whole thing. I just think, and again, this is because I've been suffering with internet connectivity issues all day. You know, if I could definitely 100% of the time guarantee that my setup on my end and on the client's end and, and on the audience's end was 100% perfect, I think we'd be good. But I personally, just based on our podcast experience, not even just with SIPDX, but just with my crappy browser tonight, um, I think that is something that would make me feel like I'm giving away a little piece of security or a little piece of mind. So that's definitely something to keep in mind. But also going forward, I think the bandwidths are going to grow. They're just going to keep getting better. So eventually that issue is probably just going to resolve itself. And and Barry, what would you say about drawbacks? How would you reassure interpreters? Uh, I would simply say that at least the, the use cases that I've seen, um, they tend to be for short meetings, anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours. And so you know, you're not going to be in front of a computer screen all day. Um, it's a chance to have new kinds of work, more kinds of work. Um, the technologies are getting better, and they're working very well right now, frankly. Um, and there's no reason to be afraid of it. One thing I will say in terms of what some might perceive as a drawback is you don't have a visual if you're just doing a conference call. And we encourage our interpreters to work for 15 minutes at a time rather than 30 because it does require more concentration. You have to listen to people. Someone may not have the best audio on their connection. But the interesting thing is that the clients understand this. They're used to these technologies. They've used them before. And when you add the interpreting into it for them, it is a huge plus and it allows them to do their work in a new way. So um, this is not going to replace the way we work. It's simply augmenting. I think that's the key thing. And Alexander Drexel, you've, you work in the European institutions that have been using this kind of technology since before some of us were even born. So what would you tell us about the drawbacks and how would you reassure interpreters who are maybe a little bit scared of the technologies as they are? Yeah, well, I, I think we've we've covered a few of the drawbacks, drawbacks as we talked about some points. And I think many of the drawbacks are, are well known. I think some of them are not quite up to date and probably overtaken by technology, te uh, technological development, basically. But I would just say that um, it, be curious, or if you're not curious, at least be open. Take a look at this, because it's happening, whether we like it or not. So we might as well try to uh, take a very close look and engage with what's happening. Uh, Alex, you're the, the king of wrap-ups. Do you want to wrap this thing up for us? Oh boy, how do you wrap up over 50 minutes of in-depth discussion of remote interpreting? I think we've covered an awful lot of facets here, from technical questions, platforms, the right setup to the potentially hot potato of the professional domicile, new working patterns, and just overall the pros and cons of remote and how it may shape our profession. We certainly hope you found this podcast episode interesting and stimulating. 
we encourage you to get in touch on www.troubledterps.com. You can also approach us individually on Twitter and also check out our earlier podcast episodes and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. See you later. We're here. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. That was awesome.